Hello, friends. Welcome again to another episode of the Pilot Podcast. I am Jared Pornut, joined by one of my co-hosts, Matt Hensley, today. Matt, great to be back with you guys uh, since I'm back from vacation. And now you're in Dallas with me. So how are you enjoying uh, the summer heat? I'm enjoying it here. And I got to go back this weekend for a funeral. And the high while I was there was about 50 degrees. And just in that moment, I, I just had to have a conversation with God. Really? <laughs> like, really? You're taking me from this? And then I, I arrive in Dallas on Saturday, and it is 105, uh, at least in my car. And, uh, yeah. But we went to the mountains of North Carolina for a few days, and it was like in the 50s in the mornings. It was so nice. Then we went to Gatlinburg for four days with some of my college buddies, and I was reminded why I call Gatlinburg the Myrtle Beach of the mountains, because it is like the trashiest place on earth. We're, we're sitting at this, this place called the island, and I'm sitting there with my son, and we're rocking, and this guy just pops right down next to us, starts smoking a cigarette in our face. It's like, are you are you kidding me? But we ate at Paula Dean's, and we gluttoned ourselves, and that was uh, delicious and a lot of fun. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about with a guest today, a guest that I've had the privilege of knowing the past 10 years. I met him 10 years ago this past summer at North Greenville University. He was our camp pastor for Future Camps. We have with us Pastor Eric Reed. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm great, fellas. How are y'all doing? Uh, we're doing, I'm doing good. I can't speak for Matt. I'm doing pretty good. Well, Alabama won, so you're obviously doing good. Yeah, we'll get to that towards Alabama, the end. Eric has Alabama a lot of strong won. feelings. You don't, you, this could be dated. You don't even know when this is dated, <laughs> and that's probably a true statement. For any sport, I don't know. any uh, – I think we're going to lose to Ole Miss, but we'll see. That's in two weeks. We'll, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very fearful of that game. It's possible. So, i tell you but, when they won't be losing, Jared. It won't be the third Saturday in October. <laughs> Are you telling me for the 15th consecutive year we're going to beat Tennessee? I'm going to say if I were a betting man, and I'm not a betting man, I would say that's about as safe as a bet as you could take. <laughs> I've always said there's three certainties in life, death, taxes, and album of beating Tennessee. At least for, it didn't used to always be that way. When I was growing up, Tennessee right. beat us seven years in a row. That's right. Uh, that's right. And, so, and and Alabama fans hated Philip Fulmer because of that. Hated yeah, him. I still hate Philip Fulmer for that. Yeah, and, so. that for, and for other reasons, too. But we won't get into that <laughs> on this podcast. But we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk towards the end, maybe a little bit about college football. But, hey, Eric, why don't you tell our listeners, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're at, tell us about your church. Uh, let's, let's learn a little bit about you. Yeah. So, uh, Eric Reed, born and raised in Lebanon, Tennessee, a suburb of Nashville. And I was in the Army for four years after I graduated from high school. Thought that. Uh, that would be my pathway for for the rest of rest of my adult life. Um, I loved the army, excelled at the army, um, and then God had other ideas. I uh, started dating my wife, who I knew she's from here before I went to the army, but we didn't start dating till after I went to the army, and uh, which was the most inconvenient thing ever because now I'm having to come back home as often as I can to see her. I'm falling in love with her, but what ends up happening is she comes to faith. And she's getting serious about following Christ. And at that point in time in my life, I was not at all. And so all of a sudden, my affections begin shifting towards wanting to marry her, have a family, come home, as opposed to career military and never come back to Lebanon again. And so as she's uh, growing in her faith, um, the Lord uses this and a series of other things um, to begin to really grip my heart and to capture my attention. And, um, and so I would say at 21 years old, I really started following Christ seriously, um, laid, down, laid down everything and said, I'm yours. And I didn't think that meant ministry at all. It would be another few years 
before um, I, I felt the Lord had called me to ministry. But I come back home, get married. Um, and then in 2006, after I did feel called to ministry a couple years later, uh, a few years after that, I planted the Journey Church. And so planted a church uh, in my hometown. I think Dean and I, um, you know, um, <laughs> shared the joys of that together. But um Plant a church in my hometown, and by God's grace, He's just um, He's He has sustained us. He has helped us as we've figured things out, as we've done things wrong. Um, it's been, it's been great. So we we'll be 16 this January uh, as a church. But yeah, family, uh, three children. Caleb is with the Lord. Two daughters, uh, Kaylee and Kyra, and uh, started a ministry uh, last year. Officially launched this summer called Knowing Jesus Ministries trying to help people understand uh, the timeless truths of God's word for everyday life. Pastoring a church in your hometown, yeah. planning a church in your hometown, 16 years there. Uh, what would you say, maybe somebody's listening to this and they're thinking about getting into church planning. What would you say is the hardest thing about church planning, looking back on the past 16 years? And then what would you even say to someone who maybe is considering ministry in their hometown even what were what some of the difficulties there don't do it no, i'm just kidding I'm just... <laughs> yeah <laughs> don't uh no um yeah so i would say this the first question with church planning um you, you know church planning is hard and so you need to go into the expectation that it's going to be hard don't look at the the stories that are the absolute anomalies where somebody plants a church and within a, a few months or a few years, it's this m massive, explosive church reaching everybody in the city. Uh, th that's just not going to happen. Uh, reality is, is it's a long, slow grind. And you got to be re ready to endure that. Um, it's, it's a slow thing. You don't have any history. You don't have any processes, systems, resources. You, you are building everything from the beginning. And so you got to be someone ready to endure that. If you've got any grandeur or illusions that you're going to parachute in and blow, it's going to blow up. Um, I, I'd say you're watching, you're watching too many Stephen Furtick documentaries. <laughs> yeah. And so with, with that, you know, in, in church planting and church revitalization, uh, which is usually something that, that we typically talk to uh, on here, uh, what what would you say are just some of the core realities or the non-negotiables uh, for for your church? Just the identity of the church. Obviously, it's not Plymouth Park isn't built around Jared Cornut. Uh, you know, Mayhill wasn't built around Matt Hensley. Uh, your church is not built around Eric Reed. What are just kind of those core realities that we build this church upon and really rally everybody around uh, that's identifiable and maybe transferable to those that are listening in that are in a rural church, city church. Uh, church plant, revitalization, everything else? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so our mission statement, and this is just, this goes beyond something stuck on a wall. Uh, our people, you hear our people use this language. You hear people praying with this language. It's really infiltrated everything over the years. We exist to show Jesus as incomparably glorious. Yeah. Um, that's what we exist to do, to showcase Jesus. And so how does that translate into real life, uh, DNA and culture of our church. Um, I tell them it's not about the name on the marquee. You know, the Journey Church may go away one day, but the mission of showing Jesus is incomparably, incomparably glorious never goes away. Um, Eric Reed might be the pastor here right now, but there will be a day when Eric Reed is not the pastor. So the name on the marquee isn't Eric, it isn't the Journey, it's Jesus. And so everything we do is about showcasing him, highlighting him. 
your role as a member of this church, as somebody who gives, as somebody who serves, as somebody who's a part of us, is you're a curtain holder. You are a stagehand. And what we exist to do is to pull the curtain back. And when that bad boy opens, is Jesus on display. So if you're here to make much of you, if you're here to be a big deal, if you're here to make much of your name or to see if you can wiggle your way into positions of influence or leadership, you're not going to like this church. We are not going to be for you because there's no big dealness here. Not even the pastor who started it gets to be the big deal. Right. And so we just that's real for us. That's a real thing for us. And that translates into everything we do. And so I would say any church can do that. Any church can say it's going to be about Jesus and it's going to be about making his name great. If you're here to make your name great, you're not going to fit. Yeah. I love going to, you know, and my work, of course, is, you know, seeing a lot of websites uh, over the years. And there's some where you can't see a page on the website without just being inundated by, by the pastor. And then there's those that you kind of have to search for it. You know, it's there on the, uh, you know, the staff page or whatever. And that always is, is an encouragement to me is where I'm not just bombarded with here is the image of the pastor and his name and everything else. It's all kind of just, even from the website, it just tells me, and it may not be the case in in real life, but on the website side of things, it's like, that seems to just kind of revolve around. Yeah, well, it's really easy for churches to become uh, pastor personality driven. And this is, I think, really important. Um, There is a sense in which the pastor's personality is going to affect the DNA of the church. So so here's the key. The question is, is is the pastor absorbed in making it about him and his prominence, his importance, his his up aboveness? Or does the pastor model um, a, a humility? a love for God, a love for people, and a pointing away from himself. Because here's the deal. In that sense, the pastor's personality does affect the church, but ultimately it's because it's not about the pastor. And so I think that's a really important thing. Yeah, I've always said the the, the church takes on the personality of the pastor. Absolutely. And the personality of the pastor is one who's before the face of God. That's a good personality that's right. to have. Well, that's Eric's a very scary thought for Plymouth Park, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got a lot of Yeah, yeah. I pray for our people. They pray for them every day. <laughs> uh, Eric, it's been cool for me to kind of watch your ministry from a distance, kind of watch your church grow uh, and see the celebrations of that. You've obviously had deep personal loss in your life as well. And now you're at this, I guess, point where your church has brought about this ministry or you have brought about this ministry called Knowing Jesus Ministries. How did this all come together and what made you decide, you know, we're going to do this and have resources, write this book? How how did it all come about? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, over the years, um, our our family story um, and what we've been through with Caleb and you know, just the medical issues he was born with, that he lived with, the ups and downs of that journey with him all the way up until his passing and even beyond his passing has really been the storyline that our church has been going the exact same amount of time. So it's if it's shaped how I've pastored, right? I mean, when you've when we've been through personal suffering, when we're having to work through real theology on hard questions. Um, the church begins to take on a posture that is sensitive to those things, is thinking about those things, is working through those things. Um, and so one of the things that I think is, uh, you know, is my years of being at camps or speaking at other churches, um, I, I have found most Christians are not prepared to deal with suffering. Um, we've got a very low, shallow theology of suffering as a whole, as, as a whole, generally speaking, broad brush. Um, most Christians aren't very equipped. They're not... They don't have healthy understanding 
of of suffering and and how to do it faithfully. And uh, most Christians and I did this. I adopted this idea that if I just love God and I just try to live faithfully, you know, God's supposed to keep things generally, you know, generally relatively clear for me. Think glassy seas are supposed to be my my future. And while we would never maybe say it like that, we seem to hold God to that expectation. You know, like when I pastor people and minister to people in marriage counseling, it the, the most problematic issues are the ones where there are unmet, uncommunicated expectations. And I think a lot of Christians have unmet, uncommunicated expectations that they think God's supposed to keep them from this. And so um, knowing Jesus Ministries really launched out of my desire to see people outside of our church be helped with working through things like this in their own lives. And so, you know, the big prominent features that we've really worked through with this ministry is helping people go beyond simply belief in God to communion with God, relationship with God, understanding that it is about fellowship with God, helping people overcome inaccurate views of Jesus and shallow theology, really giving biblical, theological, rich, meaty, understanding of Christianity, but in a way that's accessible. So one of the big things that, you know, I'm known for here at my church, they call me the dumb it down pastor, because um, I take, I don't shy away from rich theology, but we're not teaching it so that Piper, you know, is impressed, you know, we're teaching it so that it can put it, be put on the lower shelf and be assessed, uh, accessible for people. And so we don't shy away from doctrine, but we want to make doctrine accessible. Uh, A theology of suffering is one component of that. And then the fourth component is helping people not to conform um, to the culture uh, as it pertains to things of sexuality and um, understanding and views of the world and gender and all the things that they feel the pressure of when they leave the church. Are we equipping them to stand firm? So that's the that's the DNA. That's the heart of the ministry. And of course, we wrote the book, um, Uncommon Trust, as a um, particular focus on helping people to understand suffering and how to suffer well and trust God in that process. Yeah, what you t- touched on, I know it's been said before, I don't know who t- coined the term or whatever, but a lot of us can be functional atheists That's right. uh, in how we live. But but in reality, some of us can kind of be functional health and wealth prosperity gospel guys that we right. think, you know, if I give, if I serve, if I do X, Y, and Z, that everything's going to be you know, okay in my life. And, uh, you know, our family walked through that with failed adoptions and miscarriages. That was kind of what we were struggling with. And I kind of had that same mentality. It's like, God, you know, we've been giving well, we've been serving well, we've been sacrificing generous, all of this kind of stuff. And this is yeah, like, we've done right, all the right things. We've, we've done, done it right. all. We've checked all the boxes. Now, why aren't you giving us, you know, this particular thing that, that we were walking through? And so there was a lot of times where as a guy that really believed uh, yep. rich theology, I believe that's uh, right. That it, it really put it to test. And I was like, I, I really had to wrestle through that. You think you thought that I thought that how much more so we're theologically trained. So yeah. how much more so do you think uh, in the church in general and in the culture in general, we've kind of adopted. It's not that we've taught it, but we've called it somehow yeah. that God's God. If you do the right things, He's going to just pave the way so that it's, it is, it's something has gone wrong. If, if your world gets turned upside down. For sure. And that was going to be my, my question for you is, you know, let's say Plymouth Park uh, or, or me with, 
First Farmersville or, you know, uh, Jay Allen that will be listening in at his church, that we have somebody that just gets that bombshell, whatever the bombshell may be, maybe cancer, loss of a child, you know, loss of a spouse, whatever it is. Uh, what what would you say on the first steps of counseling that we can point them to? And then, of course, the resources like, you know, your ministry and so forth that we can go from there. But what's the first thing that we're just trying to to share and maybe not overshare sometimes, of course, just listening? Uh, sure. But beyond that, how can we minister to those that just get that bombshell, whatever it is? Yeah. So th- this is, I would take a multi-pronged approach to this right now from a pastor who wants to minister to and counsel people who just get that kind of news. Um, I, I think obviously the first step is just presence and being yeah. there, um, being with them, praying for them. Sometimes the hardest thing um, on a, the initial reception of news or the initial shock of something happening, you know, is to, if you go in there and give a ton of answers and like, let me give you this seven points, you know, outline with four bullet points for each sub point, you know, um, that, that, that's not where people are in that moment, right? In that moment, they're emotional in that moment, their, their affections are, are more engaged than their mind is engaged. Um, but here's what I would say. Um, I think pastoral, the long game pastoral, pastorally is we've got to be equipping people for receiving that news before they receive it so that we don't have to try to go in and do all the teaching. Once it happens, the long game is, is we've got to be preparing them with the right thinking the right mind so that in the moment of suffering, their affections are hopefully responding more in line with what they know is true, as opposed to us having to start from scratch. So so I would start with being present, loving on them, walking with them, praying with them, encouraging them, pointing to, to passages of scripture, showing God's faithfulness to them, right? He, his grace is sufficient for that hour, for that need and their weakness. I would live there. On the flip side, the long game, um, I think here's the reality. I just preached this at a church on Sunday. Uh, I was at First Baptist Gray uh, in Georgia, and um, I was preaching to them. And I went through the book of Daniel, particularly Daniel 1 uh, through 3. And I just talked about, imagine the shock of these young Hebrew boys who've grown up reading their Bibles. They know their history. They know that God has given them victory over way more powerful nations way greater armies than they have themselves. And yet in Daniel 1, what happens? God hands them over to Nebuchadnezzar and their world is flipped upside down. These three young men, these four young men, Daniel and and the others included, are shipped away. They're ripped from their families. they, They get sent to a place where they don't even speak the language. Their names get changed. I mean, you and I can read those verses in about three minutes and we, we often skip over how abrasive, disruptive, and earth-shattering that would have been. You know, Daniel probably had dreams of having a family. You know, um, Azariah had dreams of following in his father's, you know, craft. You know, I mean, uh, these were real people. And all of a sudden, everything changes. And, and in life, that's what a lot of our folks go through. Uh, they're just going about life. They're going to work. They're, you know, they're going to school and something happens. The phone call, the doctor's visit, and, and life all of a sudden is different forever. And the question becomes then, what, then what? And so what I end up going through um, in, in that sermon, and I think this is a bigger, this is a high level picture of pastorally, how do we help people? Well, I think you look at Daniel 3 and you look at how they respond to Nebuchadnezzar's threats. And there's two things they say to him in response. They say, our God is able to save us, uh, but even if he doesn't. 
And so those two points, I think right off the get-go, are really instructive. Number one, Christians need to have an understanding that God can save us. Our God is a deliverer. Our God can heal. Our God can restore the, uh, the, the broken relationship. Our God can bring back the, the rebellious child and the, or the rebellious grandchild. Um, our God can. And if you don't have that baseline theological understanding, uh, then you're not reading the Bible. Our God is not restrained in power by any circumstance. But then you have to couple that immediately. And this is, this is the part that we have to do more teaching on. Because the first point, you don't have to work too hard to convince people in the pews of that. The second point you do, and that is, but even if he doesn't. And it's this, this theological understanding that Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego had that God can rescue them, but he doesn't have to. That he may not. That he may have purposes in this that they're not aware of, so that he may not save them from Nebuchadnezzar. And even if he doesn't save them, their response is going to be faithfulness. Their response is going to be they're going to stay the course. And guys, that is a really, really counterculture message to get into the life of the church. You, you were talking about how you and Matt both theologically trained, but you have the tendency to think these things. And this probably deserves a dissertation, but <laughs> this is not something among Southern Baptists. I mean, no. any religious person, even non-religious people will That's think right. this. Do you think there's a root cause of that? Because I, I know when I'm walking into a hospital room, I'm going to pray with the family. I, one thing I always say is we're going to pray for healing. And that's going to be realized either through miraculous yeah. healing that does happen or eventually when his resurrected body is taking the glory and he experiences that. But so many people say, no, no, if I just pray enough, if I do this, it'll work. Where does that come from? Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, to Matt's point, I think there is somewhat of a, um, there's a functional prosperity gospel at work underlying a lot of our theological understanding. Um, I think some of it is, you know, at the end of the day, we, we have a man-centered view of the world, I think, is one of the big problems, is we think God exists for us. We would never say it that way. We, I mean, most people, honestly, they wouldn't say it that way. Because I think if presented it that way, they would be like, oh, no, no, I know it's not about me. But then when we functionally live, I think we sort of do think it's about us, that we're the center we're the center of the stage. We're the main actor on, you know, we're the, the story is about us and everybody around our lives is a bit player. They're extras in the story. And God's kind of the one who's making sure that we're the protagonist and the hero of the story. And I, I mean, I, I hate saying it like that, but it's like, I really do think we've got a misunderstanding of like, no, God is the center of the story. And so if, if part of what God wants to do in his story is allow for me to experience these things that I might have to trust him, that I may have to, um, that I may have to experience um, loss and weakness and all these things. So I'm depending on him so that I'm, so that I'm displaying his powers perfect in my weakness, then it's his prerogative to do that because the story's about him. And I think we flip that and expect that he's going to kind of clean everything up because ultimately the story is about us. I think that's the root. I honestly do. That's good. I, I remember I had heard a sermon from David Platt that just changed, blew my mind on this. And he preached the story of Joseph and all, all these horrible things that happened to Joseph. But we lose sight of the, the cupbearer, who that's the right. only reason he is in prison 
is to meet Joseph so Joseph can eventually meet Pharaoh and save his yep. family because it's God's restorative plan for Israel. And his whole point was, you know, God is doing about, I think this is a Piper quote, God's yep, doing about 10,000 things in your life that maybe you're aware of two of them, but yep. ultimately you're suffering. Don't waste your suffering. That's right. God may use your suffering for the betterment of somebody else. So that's where the, but if not uh, from Meshach, Shadrach and Bengo are so important. Uh, you remember Eli's response when Samuel told him that his two sons, uh, you know, God, the Lord was going to strike his sons down. And Eli's response in first Samuel three was it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Um, I, and I'm sure he said that with tears in his eyes, y'all. He, I mean, if you're fathers, you know he loved his sons. But he also understood that, that God is God. Um, you know, Jesus says, you know, if this cup can pass, nevertheless, you know. And so it's this idea that it's okay to want God to heal the cancer. It's okay to yearn for God to redeem your, your rebellious child who strayed. But there's also a resignation, a surrender, an, an empty handedness that we say, but God, you're God and I'm not. And I think we've got to be discipling our folks to understand that um, there is a true surrender in the book. I talk about this to the sovereignty and wisdom of God. It's not just the sovereignty is, he's, that he's powerful. There's a resignation to his wisdom. That he's, he knows more than I know. He, he's working a plan that I don't grasp. It's the Tim Keller quote. If yeah. I knew everything that God knows, I would pray for exactly what he gives me. Yeah, it's this weird balance, right? Because some of us go, well, I can't pray for this because that's too prosperity. God. Well, no, you, right. you, you can pray for it, but you got to be content if God doesn't answer it. That's and then right. the other flip side of it is we expect it. And it, it's such a hard thing to balance. And it's a hard thing to get your people to understand too. No, that's a good point. I think the, what we need to help our people to understand is they they can't resolve this tension. They have to live in this tension. Yes, pray that God would heal. Pray that God. But then as, you know, as Jesus prays, you know, I mean, Jesus models this. Jesus really does model this. If there's a way that this cup can pass is a, is a genuine desire, <laughs> He, he has a genuine desire that if the if the wrath of God that's about to fall on him could be satisfied in any other way, nevertheless, right, your will, your will be done. And I think that has to be the posture. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot talks about this in a lot of her stuff where she says one of the biggest things that we have to learn to do is to accept whatever God puts in our hands and say, thank you and say, thank you. Uh, so I, I think teaching our folks not to stop at our God can deliver us. We have to teach them to go on to verse 18, where they say, but even if he doesn't, he's faithful. And then, you know, what follows that, again, this is a long answer to the ultimate question is what, what do we do? How do we minister to people? How do we pastor people? The long game is we remind them that God is with them. God is with them in the fire. Uh, you know, Isaiah 41, 10, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God, right? Um, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us in the beginning of Matthew. And at the end of Matthew, he is, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the presence of God with us is a promise that we cling to in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our pain. Jesus tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, right? My power is made perfect in your weakness. So it's like, no, I'm not going to take away that thorn. No, I'm not going to take away that messenger from Satan, but I'm with you. My grace is is with you. And you'll need to depend on that grace day at a time, moment by moment. It's not a bank account full of grace. You get to withdraw from it, your convenience. It's dependence. Yeah. And that's what God wants. God wants that. Well, I was hoping you would say, just hand them your book. That's, that's what I was aiming <laughs> for. Uh, but uh, we appreciate that. 
but speaking of your your book and the uh, ministry that you you have uh, launched, why don't you yeah. kind of walk through that? What it's what it's for, kind of how it's aiming, and uh, and to minister to folks. And we'll put all of this in the show notes as well sure. for people to be able to grab it. Yeah. So two things. One of the things we're going to be doing is we're going to be publishing through the ministry. Um, and our our publishing kind of philosophy is short, readable books, books every Christian can read. Um, here's listen. I'm a John Piper head. I'm a John Piper head. I love John Piper. I love deep theology. Right. I got. I'm the thick book buying guy. Right. But here's what I know. I've pastored a church that I've poured into theologically now for 15 plus years, and you guys know this. There's always going to be a fraction of people who are the Piper heads like me. Everybody else is a Joe and Jane Christian living their life, running their business, clocking in and clocking out, raising families, running kids to sports, and they don't read the big thick books. And if they do read one, it's the only one they read the entire year. And so what we wanted to do is publish books that are really accessible. So this is a short book. It's small um, and it's meant to be small, but it, we don't skimp on richness of content. So that's the, that's the philosophy of this is it's readable, but it's rich. In terms of the actual book itself, Uncommon Trust, um, I, I'm walking through the lessons that God taught us um, in, in our family as we were having to trust him, not only through our son's suffering, but ultimately his death. Um, so those who don't know, uh, my son was 15 years old. He passed away December 1st, 2019. Um, he needed a kidney transplant from a surgical mistake that happened to him when he was uh, two months old. He got that transplant at two years old. And from two years old to 13 years old, he lived a uh, a somewhat normal life. He, he had a lot of medical issues, but from the outside looking in, you wouldn't necessarily know it. Um, he had different regiments and routines. He had to do medications he was on. He'd get sick and go to the hospital regularly, but he went to school. He played sports. Jared met him. I mean, he would he'd be at camp with me. Uh, he loved football. He never got to see Tennessee football be good. He doesn't even know about what we used to be. He doesn't even know what we used to be. Um, Poor kid had to suffer his whole life, not just physically, but as a Tennessee fan being awful. Um, so, you know, that those years from two to 13 were normal compared to the first two years and then compared to his last two years. Um, when he was 13 years old, fall of 2017, he had a stroke from fungal meningitis. He got fungal meningitis. He lost his ability to talk, to walk. Uh, his motor skills suffered. He began to have neurological pain all the time. And he had lung issues. He had respiratory issues. That was eventually the cause of death for him. He had respiratory failure. And, you know, his whole life, we were preparing for the reality that that may be the case. Um, Jerry can tell you here. He's heard me preach before to students. Um, our family had to, to learn how to live our life knowing there may be a day where I would have to bury my son. Um, if you know that in advance, how are you walking with God? How are you understanding life and death and suffering, um, not reactively, but proactively? How are you learning to prepare yourself for the, for the trials and the tribulations that life brings? And, and ultimately, what the book is about in very short form is how do you grow to trust God in the middle of, of life full of pain, full of trials, um, that will turn upside down when you least expect it. And what I walk through in the book is the answer is found in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? You trust in the Lord with all your heart, leaning not on your own understanding. So it can't be because you understand what God's up to. And it can't be because you've seen the plan and you approve of the plan. 
You have to trust God even when you can't make sense of what God might be doing in this thing. And the way that you do that is in all your ways, you acknowledge him. You must know him. You must know his character. You must know the God of the Bible who has revealed himself to us, not the God that you've constructed, who always fixes your problems, who keeps you from, you know, free from all the trials and pain. And what I do in the book is I actually walk through four attributes of God. Um, I, I tee up trusting God from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, but then I walk through how do we know him in such a way that builds trust, that trust becomes the fruit of knowing him. And I talk about the sovereignty of God. You must know that God is in control, has all power. I talk about the wisdom of God. You must understand that that power is in service to a wise and good plan. We must know about the love of God, that his plan and wisdom are never detached from his love for us, particularly as his people. Uh, he doesn't plan the, the days of our lives um, abstractly. He knows us. He's for us. He loves us. And then lastly, you, you need to know the faithfulness of God. So whatever God puts you and allows for you to go through, he is faithful to all of his promises to you in that sufficient grace, the promise of uh, our inheritance in heaven, um, the sustaining power of comfort in our afflictions. All of these things about the faithfulness of God are what we cling to as we're in those trials and those pains. And then I close the book by looking at how do we avoid leaning on our own understanding? And I talk about taking thoughts captive, how we're uh, a lot of times the stories we tell ourselves when we lack information are things that actually are the, what produce anxiety and despair and depression in our lives um, when we're fearful of tomorrow because we're not trusting God, but we're leaning on our own understanding. Um, there's real outcomes to what we think about. There's real fruit from what we let our minds fixate on. And so that's what the book outlines. It's practical, it's pastoral, but it's theological. I love that, Eric. And what we'll do is I'm going to do... Uh, we'll do a giveaway. Maybe we'll announce uh, next episode, but I'll get a copy of the book. We'll mail it to a listener. Great, uh, maybe yeah. if, the, if you rate the podcast or anything like that, we'll give one away. And I'll, tying it all together, I love that You know your story and where you're at now is only possible if Jesus is incomparably glorious. Because if he's not, then you're just mad at God. That's right. But if you see him as that, you're able to, as hard as it is, walk through the days remembering and hoping and knowing that one day you're going to see Caleb again. And I know you long only in Christ, only in Christ can, can suffering be redeemed. Only in Christ is suffering, not senseless. That's great. Uh, Matt, do you want to do anything else before we jump into the center culture topic or ask anything else? Nope. Nope. I'm ready for the Southern culture topic because I feel like I've got this Tennessee guy, this Alabama guy here, and I'm just going to watch as a graduate of Dallas (laughs) Baptist University that had football uh, in our dreams. So (laughs) y'all got a good baseball play. Yeah, we had a great baseball team, but that was it. So. so we are the Poly Podcast, and we do talk about culture and SEC football. Even in Texas now, we're becoming more SEC here. Right. Eric, I'm just going to simply ask you this. Uh, right now, college football season ended. We love college football. Who's your top four? Who's getting in the playoffs? Um, Alabama. Okay. I, and you know it pains me to say that. Um, I think Oregon's going to be in because I don't think anybody yeah, in that – the best win. Yeah, I don't necessarily know if they're top four. I mean, I hate to say that. That sounds – I think they are right now, though. Yeah, but I think they are. And I don't see a, I don't see a scenario where anybody's beating them. Mm-mm. I'm going to say Penn State. Wow, okay. I'm, I'm going on – I'm going on – they've got a hard schedule still to get through. Yeah. Oh, it's brutal. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Um, man, if, 
am I asking – am I saying this is the top four or who I think is going to get to the playoffs? This is just who your top four is right now, who who you think the four best teams are. I'm not going to say Clemson. I don't think – No, Clemson's I don't – no, they're, they're out. They're done. They're not in. Um, I don't know if anybody from the ACC gets that nod. I don't think so. <sighs> say Georgia? Georgia. That's yeah. good. That's it. I was debating Oklahoma and Georgia. Oklahoma still is a little suspect. Oklahoma, no, I, I don't think – I think they're going to slip up. So, I – I had my top four I gave to a friend this morning. It's Alabama, Georgia, one and two. Oregon, three, because yep. they get the best win on the season. Yep. Yep. And then number four, and I do not think this team will get in the playoff, but at the season, end of the day, they got two really good wins, and that's Iowa. Iowa? Uh, yeah. is, hey, so here's the deal. Yeah. So Iowa, Penn State, I think one of those two for sure. Whoever wins that game. Yep. yep. Yeah, Iowa will find a way to mess it up. They always do. They're always that perennial nine-ten win team, but they're pretty good. I don't have the Tennessee Vols in. Sorry I know. So I was debating whether or not to. You know, we can still win the SEC. We're still, we're, uh, we're we're still numerically in it. Do you think Heupel's going to work out, or do you think I, he's you know, another? I want to give him a chance. You know, I, I now that I'm our fifth coach, um, you know, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm a little slower to be all in, but I want to give the guy a chance. I want to give the right. guy a chance. Um, I do think they are going to be more. They're going to be better coached. Yeah. Um, the question is, is going to be, can he recruit? At the SEC, at the bottom bottom lines, you better get players. You got to have a quarterback in the SEC. And Tennessee, when's the last time Tennessee had an elite quarterback? It's been a Dobbs, long time. And he wasn't elite, but Dobbs yeah. was. He gave us a chance to win. He was serviceable. Yeah, that's right. He gave us a real chance to win. So Dobbs is the last guy. But before that, I mean, Ainge. Yeah. Ainge. And even he went a world beater, so it's been it's been a rough. And the Ainge has been a while. That's been a that's been a long time, hasn't it, bro? That's been a long time. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. So, well, Eric, thanks for joining us. Uh, you can find out more about Knowing Jesus Ministries uh, at knowingjesusministries.co. Yep, or there's or, an alternative app. Yeah, and it'll take you. It'll direct you to this kjmen.org. Okay. Are you worried that some people may think that's King James Ministries? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have to be careful with the initials on this. <laughs> and uh, his book, Uncommon Trust, uh, I'm assuming Amazon. Yep, Amazon. Books. Yep. And we'll announce next episode, we'll, we'll give a copy of that away for somebody who maybe needs that book if you do a couple things for us. Eric, thanks for joining us on the pod. Hey, appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. All right, my friends. Well, thanks again for coming to the potluck. We hope you had your fill and had your full. As you're going through suffering, know that only seeing Jesus is incomparably glorious will get you through it. Join us next time. Same Baptist time, same Baptist hour. Stay Baptist, my friends. <laughs>